Fasten your seatbelts. It's time for the Anything Goes Hour with Stu Breyer. Welcome back to our program. It is a pleasure to have a gentleman who uh, talks about something we talk about a lot, and that's kindness. Michael Boker. Hi, Mike. Hi, Sue. Thanks for having me on. I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. This is a, a pleasure for me. We do talk about the subject a lot, and uh, you are an investigative journalist. So how did you get into this area of uh, finding out lots of uh, acts of kindness? You know, as you, do, as you start, um, I, I started right off on a newspaper that did not have AP uh, back in the days when we had AP and Newswire and stuff. So we, we, there were about six of us on staff, and we had to fill up the whole newspaper every day of the week. So we're writing all kinds of stories, um, and it just got to me that <laughs> the stories that were easiest to write were always the bad ones, the crime, the this and that. And then, you know, those important stories, but there were also stories of people doing pretty amazing things and I just like to do those. I thought, you know what, that's more than half of the overall human story so why don't we learn how to do those? They're harder to do. They really are. Um, but I think when they're done right, I think people are more interested in those than any other type. I truly do. I think I agree with you. I, we, we do once in a while. We'll talk to the audience. They'll tell us kindness stories, things in the supermarket, things at home. It's it's amazing. And you, you also have the title of, Is Karma Real? I guess it is when you do something kind, you feel good yourself. And some of the stories that, uh, especially when I got to re- working for Reader's Digest, <clears throat> that was a lot of fun. Um, I worked there most of the 90s and did their major pieces, their original and while uh, they're, they're far more difficult, I had friends at the New York Times, and they would just shrug and say, you know what, those are too difficult. We can't do those. People get it mixed up. They, they think that working for the L.A. Times, New York Times, or somebody like that, that that's really tough, journalism. It's not. That writing part of that is simple. You could do that sophomore in college. It's who, what, why, where, and when. In inverted pyramid, and you got there. It is the research is critical. You have to be top notch at doing that. But the writing at something like Reader's Digest is far, far more difficult because you can write it any way you want. There's so many different ways. There's no formula, ironically. And having done all of those things many, many, many times, I'm speaking from experience. So you have to choose. Okay, how do I tell this story? And, Stu, the the thing about writing for some stories uh, as opposed to others, I'm not trying to pass on information on certain stories. I'm trying to touch the reader emotionally. And that's a whole different kind of challenge. And if you can do that, then you can tell these positive stories in a much more powerful way. And that's what I set out to learn in Hopefully, I've gotten somewhere uh, along the line there and been able to do that to some degree. Um, but it is a much bigger challenge than straight on riding the news. 
So, Michael, when you were with the Reader's Digest, did you ask the readers to send in their stories of kindness? Um, no, I didn't. I actually was reading six or seven stories or newspapers a day. Mm -hmm. And I would find small stories in the newspapers and listen to the radio. I, I got a lot of my stories off real short radio shows. And I thought, aha, there's a lot more to there. this than you just get an instinct. Sure. Um, I found a, 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 a fire, fire, well, actually it wasn't a fire guy. He was about 20 years old or 21 years old. And he got busted in the 90s for having about 50 joints, 50 marijuana cigarettes. And, you know, back then you went to jail for five years. Yeah. And that's what happened. And he thought he had ruined his life and he was kind of in despair. And five years is a long darn time if you're in San Quentin. So uh, he joined the firefighting team and they still have an inmate firefighting team in California. And he was sent immediately down to Malibu where they have all the movie stars, homes and everything. But it's very steep there and they had a huge wildfire on the top of the hill, like 70 feet high, those flames. And he told him not to go into the flames, to stay at the top of the hill and help people down. And But he heard a woman screaming in the fire. And he had to kind of make a decision. They told me not to do that. I'm going to have to break the rules again. Um, but he did. And he went in and um, uh, found the woman and brought her out. But when she, um, when she got to safety, she kept screaming. So the story wasn't over, and he finally understood that she had a child back in the fire, and he was autistic. Hmm. And so Ken, it was the guy's name, Ken Benedict, Ken ran back into the fire, and they thought they had lost him uh, a long time, and then like a movie set, you know, the fire kind of opens for a minute, the smoke opens for a minute, and he walks out with that boy, um, and they're both safe. And... I interviewed him actually back in prison uh, and, and never really saw him. I, I interviewed him over the phone. And 20 years later for this book I had, my book just came out last week called Michael Bowker's No Ordinary Days, and it has a lot of these kinds of stories. Mm. Um, so I, I interviewed him 20 years later for this book, like, Ken, what's your life been like since then? And he said, you're not going to believe what happened. Everybody read the story you wrote in Reader's Digest, including the governor of California, and he gave me an instant pardon. Thank God. But I was out, didn't have to serve the last four and a half years of my sentence. And then he said a uh, CEO of a major corporation read it, called him and said, we want guys like you working for us. So now he runs the, uh, the entire computer system for this company worldwide. But he says, the coolest thing is I'm invited every month to go to these schools and talk to young kids about uh, no matter what happens in their life, and no matter what's going to happen in their life, they'll always have a second chance. So these, this one incident that he did, I mean, it was incredibly brave, but nevertheless, it was one but it's rippled out for decades now. How many people, how many kids has he touched? How many lives has he changed? Including his own and, you know, like I say, he did the hardest thing of all. He saved himself. I love those stories. I'm looking forward to your book, but there's uh, something here that says um, 
a man who saved a million lives? Is that a reflection of uh, other stories you've read? Yes, that, that story is still the most unbelievable of all the stories I have done. Um, I, I, it was on a radio station that I heard about it. A fellow who was an immigrant from Ireland uh, had saved a young girl about 12 years old in Yosemite National Park. A 10,000-pound boulder had rolled over on top of her. Mm. She was kind of in a ditch, so she was flattened out in there, but still alive. And he stayed there for about eight hours while they got that rock off of her. He risked his life the whole time, just try to keep her calm. Uh, he also did some medical things that saved her life. And that was the end of the story with her. She had had some trouble in school, and that ended with that dramatic rescue because she said, I'm not afraid of anything under 10,000 pounds anymore. So it was just a good rescue story, good, brave story. Well, I called him 20 years later as well last summer and said, Graham, I know you've been up to something. (laughs) You're not a guy who sits around what's been happening in the last 20 years. And he said, again, you're not going to believe it. He said, after your story went worldwide, we got uh, calls from doctors in Vladivostok, which is a really remote uh, Russian, uh, at that time it was Russian, um, city just over by the Sea of Japan, way the heck over there. So when the Soviet Union fell, it no longer, Vladivostok people got no longer got any help from anybody. So they were isolated and they had no medical gear. And they said, we need heart monitors. We have tens of thousands of people dying every year, and we have no heart monitors. We, we read your story in the digest. We saw that you were a medical hero. Can you help us? He goes, no. I'm a rescue guy. I didn't know how to do any of that. So for two months, he was just bothered by it, and he happened to come across a hospital, and he saw these uh, a huge dump truck dumping these machines into a recycle bin. And he knew what they were, and he raced over, and he says, those are heart monitors, aren't they? And I said, yeah, they're used. We bought brand new ones. We don't need them anymore. And he said, can I have them? And they said, yes, they're free. We're just going to dump them anyway. So he started a nonprofit, raised the money, sent them to Vladivostok, and they instantly put them in all the hospitals, saving you know tens of thousands of people a year. Story doesn't stop there. These people from Vladivostok went to international health uh, conferences, told what happened. Pretty soon, Graham's getting calls from Nicaragua, from Thailand, uh, from India, you name it. People wanted help. And he enlarged his nonprofit, and now he sends, you know, basically secondary but still usable equipment from all over the United States and Canada to all over the world. And he's easily saved a million lives since then. So again, one one thing he did save that girl in Yosemite rippled out now to save over a million lives. And those kinds of stories do aren't told enough. I, I'm, I get passionate about that you know we have tens of hundreds of thousands of stories on the war in ukraine which is fine we need to cover that but zero about this one and to me you know shows like yours and a few others that focus on positive stories maybe we can enlarge those and because these are these are true stories too and these happen all the time 
It's remarkable, uh, the uh, the stories and your research. Uh, is, your, is your book primarily about some of these uh, interesting stories? or Yes. Uh, again, I, I named it No Ordinary Days and then realized there are a whole bunch of books called that. So I call it Michael Bowker's No Ordinary Days. And it's on, on uh, Amazon and it's on uh, a website called 60 Degrees Publishing. And that's spelled out 60. Because 60 degrees is a temperature it has to be before butterflies can fly. Mm -hmm. So the publisher is using it as a symbology kind of thing. But the book is about my life as a journalist and the incredible stories. It's one of the most unlikely, coolest love stories I've ever come across in there about a Chinese spy and an American professor who meet in the most unlikely way. And it takes the leaders of you know the free world to, to make all this happen um, there are some true crime things in there um, that I got deeply involved with uh, unfortunately a little closer to these serial killers than I would have liked but even those stories have some pretty heroic detective uh, detectives who did some pretty amazing work to track these people down so, Michael, and what about the uh, the stories uh, was disconcerting that you got death threats because you covered some stories? Oh, boy, I've had a lot in my career, yes. A lot of them, oh, my God. Um, yeah. Yes, many, for years and years, actually. Um, I did a, a piece that ultimately, it wasn't a piece, it was a book. It ultimately came out in uh, Simon Schuster put it out, and it was about uh, major companies that were had poisoned their workers for decades and decades, and still were, uh, in the United States and around the world. And I ended up uh, giving that information, took me, they asked me back for like 40 hours of testimony from the U.S. Senate um, to talk about this, and several of these guys got in big trouble, there were criminal charges filed against them. Um, and, but we're talking billions upon billions and billions. I mean, Tom Daschle, who was the president of the Senate at the time, he leaned over to me and he said, you know, it's us against the biggest companies in the world. And at the time, Stu, I'm going, let it, let it happen. Bring them on. <laughs> I don't think I really realized. Um, it just seemed like a cowboy movie to me, and I was doing the right thing, by golly, and going to stick with it. We know so that people on. Yeah. I, I certainly made the bad list on certain people and then I testified against one of the major um, well you know, I gave I, I did a deposition stating some information I found about Johnson and Johnson and their baby powder mm -hmm. had asbestos in it and that was just two years ago but I did not get any, I just want to make it clear, I did not get any death threats from Johnson & Johnson, zero. I didn't get any, uh, I didn't get any connection with them at all. It was not them that did it, and I want to make that very clear. Mm -hmm. But I did get, and then I did some true crime stuff. And when you do do true crime articles, <laughs> um, especially serial killer stuff, you get kooky people coming out of the woodwork they've decided they know it was probably their brother-in-law or the person down the street or 
so I've kind of morphed away from that, but I did it for a period of time. Well, doing the right thing takes a lot of guts, and uh, we appreciate people like you that do it. Certainly. It was fun to mm-hmm. have the chance. Uh, and I think that you have to choose in life uh, the things that make you feel good about yourself, no matter what it is. It might just be your focus on your family, and that's, that's all it needs to be. For me, it was, I've always had something over my desk that since college that read, uh, to give a voice to those who don't have voices. And that's gotten me out of bed every day. I mean, that's a great motivator. And that's what I've tried to do. Uh, and that's what journalism, at least until recently, has allowed me to do. Much harder to find an outlet now for uh, for these kinds of stories. I, I, I don't understand it because people love these stories. Well, it's just that journalism so much has turned into advocacy. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's kind of hard to... I'm trying to rejuvenate, and a lot of the books I'm writing these days, I just take the politics out of them entirely. That's good. Uh, we we did, need that. We're doing some health stuff on long COVID. Mm-hmm. We're doing. We're trying to get a documentary together on it. Um, and I just tell everybody from the beginning, no politics. This is health to me rises above politics. Uh, the good stories that you do, the good things people do for each other or the bravery they show, it does. It rises above politics. And so let's just treat it that way and try to try to see if we can come together no matter how we feel politically. I think it's a kind thing these Maybe. days when you lay off politics for a while. We need a break. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing. I've been political. I wrote speeches for a mayor of Los Angeles for years and years and stuff. So I know politics. I have my own politics. But I also think certain things transcend it. And so if I want to work with somebody who's clearly on the other side of the political aisle, I don't care. If we're going to be able to help people get through long COVID or get through some of these auto other autoimmune diseases that are right now through their cast into shadow people say, oh, you really don't have anything, it's psychosomatic. Well, in my book, uh, Beating Long Hauler Syndrome, I, I interviewed the best doctors in the world, Sinai, NIH, Mayo Clinic, you know, London, uh, everywhere, Africa, and every one of them said, these things are real. This is not in the patient's head. It's time that doctors and neighbors and family Realize that what these people have is serious and it's real, and we need to find treatments and cures. And that's what our documentary is going to be about. So, uh, again, doing this kind of thing, I can work with anybody. I don't. I don't care uh, about any anything other than that they are totally devoted to doing this kind of thing. Because man, oh man, these things are. They can savage your life with brain fog and fatigue and things like that. So it's time for it's time for heroes to stand up and mm-hmm. to take care of business for these folks that need us. All most Americans want is the truth, and uh, it's very hard to get to these days. Now, uh, I feel blessed because I've been doing this for a long time, Michael. And I have guests like yourself on the show, and then I get feedback. Boy, that doctor helped me out that you had on. I didn't know that or this or that. 
So uh, I feel blessed because I can do that. Exactly. And that you've chosen to take this pathway. Um, I'm sure you could choose to make it some other kind of show based on some other kind of thing. And the fact that you do have this kind of show to me, it, it just it provides a ray of hope for the future. And uh, hope seems to be <laughs> kind of a diminishing commodity. <laughs> it's like going into the grocery store and all of a sudden half the shelves are gone. Well, part of that's been hope. Well, let's get it back. Mm-hmm. Well, we got, I guess, one person at a time. Uh, we keep trying, and, of course, we do other things on the show. We vent about things, and we do do politics. But I always try to make room for the subject that we're talking about being a better person, helping other people. And the effects of it is just amazing. I mean, I've had stories from our audience. We have a wonderful audience that say, you know, I'm I'm in the supermarket and I'm short of change and somebody will walk up and buy my groceries for me. I mean, different things like that. It happens more often than we realize, except we don't hear about it. It's, it's, I, I, I know go walking over to Starbucks sometimes I sit and have coffee and I'll see these folks coming by in wheelchairs and they they have a little place where uh, they have a place where they can rent um, over you know condos and stuff like that and I talked to a woman when she came by once I said what's your life like you know and she goes every day I drive my wheelchair for 20 minutes over to a school and I teach and I said, well, what happens if it rains? He goes, I get wet. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. That kind of courage uh, is front-page news to me. It really is. And I'm going to try to make it front-page news. Before this year is out, I'm going to do a story on her and others like her. Those are stories that I think most people will like very, very much. So, um, Michael, uh, you're working on, you finished that book. And you're working on a documentary, did you say, about uh, long-term COVID? Yes. What we're going to do is rebrand all of these crazy diseases that have names you can't pronounce. Mm-hmm. You know, myelagic encephalitis, latus, itis, which is called ME. Millions of people have this, uh, you know, and they call it chronic fatigue, which it used to be combat fatigue and everybody took it seriously then it morphed into chronic fatigue and everybody started calling it oh the yuppie older white woman's disease well that is horrific to paint pain in that kind of way where you shame people that's awful so we are going to we're going to go into big companies like ford and say hey Help us rebrand this disease so that we've got a product out there that people will believe in and support and we'll start getting funding like they do for cancer and things like that. Uh, so that's one thing. I also have, do I have a novel coming out? Yay, my first novel um, this fall. Mm-hmm. And it inherent in that, it's a, a story set in Paris in 1925. Are people trying to find where the positive things in life are to the two main characters have issues and they're trying that they're, they're trying to 
see whether they can trust the world again and they meet in the most unlikely circumstances. Hemingway plays a little apart and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, I, I love the 20s. I love you know, Gertrude Stein and Picasso. But I try to interlace the book with the whole concept of what is, how to find the goodness in, you, in life. Um, how do you forgive yourself, first of all? Mm. Uh, how do you find the goodness in your own self? That may be the hardest thing that we have to do. And once we do that, I think that it becomes far easier to see it in others. So that, that, this, the book is called Gods of Our Time. My main character is a journalist going to interview Picasso and, and Hemingway, and, and he thinks they're going to be gods of his time. Well, <laughs> they're not. They're just human beings with lots of foibles. Oh, yeah, um, like everybody else. So, <laughs> but I hope that uh, people will feel when they read this that there is a struggle for goodness, for kindness, but it's achievable. Happiness. We did a whole segment uh, a few days ago on people need to start liking themselves. You know, they don't like themselves, so, so nothing else can work good if you don't like yourself and you're not worthy. So uh, that's a good way to like yourself is do some kind things. So. I think that's number one. <clears throat> I think that too, many, too often we tell people, we shout from the mountaintops, chase your dreams, don't be afraid to go for your dreams, give up everything to go for your dreams. Well, my guess is 80-90% of people don't know what their dreams are. And they feel a little ashamed that, why well, don't really have a dream? I don't know how you find your dream. And I think we should spend a whole lot more time in the media, in schools, and as parents uh, sharing some of the pathways to creating a dream and sometimes uh, you reach the, what you think is your dream and it does hasn't provided the great satisfaction that you thought it would but time to find another one Michael it's great you talking with you I only have a few more minutes but I have a listener who may have a question for you WYCH you have a sure. question um, I just wanted to say that my, my favorite act of kindness is to let somebody in front of me at the grocery store if they only have an item or two and I have a fuller cart than them or to let somebody in line when it's a stoplight that's red and there's three or four cars to space and someone's coming out of a gas station or you flick your lights off and on and say, go ahead. Yeah, I did it today. It makes me feel happy. You know, it just makes me smile. And I think it's... um also uh, more difficult to be angry than it is to be happy, especially if I'm upset with my husband. It, it drains me <laughs> that, rather than being a, in a good mood, and normally we're in pretty good moods all the time. So. All right, thank you. Yeah, little, you know, it doesn't have to have, be a big act of kindness, a little thing, by letting somebody go ahead of you. And you know what I find, Michael, because I hate to say that at these times it seems uh, civility is waning a little bit, that even when I see somebody walking into, say, the supermarket and they're not that close and I keep the door open for them, they seem so grateful. Like, I mean, to me, it should be a natural thing. But uh, these days, it's not as easy. No, it isn't. But And I think even if 
somebody seems annoyed that you held the door open for them, you can't let that stop you from being kind the next time. Oh, no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop me, no. Yeah. You just, you, you're being kind because it's the right thing to do, and secondarily, so somebody will say thank you and you, you enjoy that feedback, but primarily it's got to be because you know it's the right thing mm-hmm. to do, and it makes you feel better about what you're doing. So, Michael, I know you've done uh, TV and worked for Reader's Digest, and uh, I think it'd be a good idea how we can get some of the material that you have written. What's the best oh, way? Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I would love that. That's, um, you can see a lot of what I've written on that, that one website. It's spelled out 60, S-I-X-T-Y, 60degreespublishing.com. And several of the books that I have are there. Oh, by the way, my novel just won Best International Novel of the Year Award. Wow, congratulations. I'm very happy. <laughs> That's great. Because you know, I wasn't even sure I could write fiction. Because I'd written nonfiction my whole life, probably 4,000 articles and a zillion books. But I, I, wrote, I was like a little baby quaking in my boots, going, can I do this? So to get that kind of confirmation, you know, I, I got confirmation from my own, uh, my own self. I knew I had written something pretty decent, but to, to get that from from the Southern California Book Produ- uh, Publishers Association, which is the biggest in the country, so that was very nice to have, you know, feedback from someone else to get that. But also, my books are on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, there is another Michael Bowker, a Professor Michael Bowker, B-O-W-K-E-R. He lives in England, and he writes chemistry books. And I can't even spell his chemistry okay, books. Okay, so we don't want the chemistry, laugh, Michael. Yeah. I call him and I say, boy, people think I'm really smart now because of your books. <laughs> and he says, people think I can really write because of your books. Let's just keep doing it. <laughs> but, uh, he, you know, it is, you, you might see his books up there is all I'm saying. Uh but yeah, those two places. Uh, it, I do have a distributor that takes out to Barnes and Noble and things like that. But Barnes and Noble is tougher because the books come and go, whereas they're always going to be up there on Amazon and on Sixty Degrees Publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got several books lined up after this. Um, and you know, we're just having fun. And Stu, I can't tell you how much I appreciate talking about positive things. Well, we love doing that. To be able to do that. We love doing that on our program because, yes, we do talk about some of the things that are really irritating people, but I like to balance it off with the little reminders about being good to each other. So thank you, Michael, for being with us. I wish you all good luck. Congratulations on your award. Um, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I, I again, I appreciate it immensely, and I get to Connecticut, by golly, <laughs> I hope we can have lunch. That would be great. Have you ever been to Connecticut? I have been. Um, my, uh, I actually did a couple of stories uh, for, actually for the Digest up in Boston. Mm-hmm. So I went from New York up there and, and ambled around, and I wanted to see Connecticut. It's always felt like, I don't know why, but it's always felt kind of home to me. I think uh, maybe that's where my... Some of my relatives are from, but uh, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful place. 
Well, I'd love to meet you, and you have a great day, and good luck with your new books. Thanks, Stu. I appreciate it. Good luck with your show. I, I know that you had tremendous success, and I appreciate being on. All right, Michael. Thank you very much.